Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Menashe. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today is no exception. We have a great guest. Today's show was recorded in front of a live studio audience at the Ottawa Real Estate Investors Organization. All the way from New Orleans, Louisiana, welcome to the show, Brian London. Thanks so much, Victor. Right a great on. pleasure to join you. Well, it's with great pleasure that I'd like to introduce a dear friend. His name is Brian London. And Brian is the chair of the New Orleans Investment Conference, the longest-running investment conference in the world. It's an extraordinary conference. I've been several times and uh, encourage you to attend as well if you haven't. It's really a fantastic conference, and it's not just... It's a, it's a conference that had its roots in, um, in, in minerals and uh, precious metals, and today it's much more than that. Uh, there's a large real estate component to it as well. And some of the best and brightest in the world come and speak at this conference. And uh, I know I'm going to be there this, uh, this fall. It's in October. And I'm uh, looking forward to uh, what Brian has to, to share tonight. Uh, Brian is also the chair, or sorry, the publisher and the editor of the Gold Newsletter. So he's an expert on precious metals and commodities. And we're going to be talking a little bit about the economic cycle tonight. Uh, because obviously everything that's going on in the world has got, uh, I know it's got my head spinning. And maybe the place to start, Brian, we have people looking for the flight to safety. The stock market has been getting pummeled. There's no safety to be found in the bond market. Traditionally, precious metals have been a source of safety. And yet even there, things are up and down. What are your thoughts uh, on what's going on? Yeah, uh, Victor, I, I hate to say it, there probably is not a classic uh, safe haven in the markets right now. Maybe, you know, real estate, something illiquid that's producing income, um, or relatively illiquid. But, you know, what we've had over the past, uh, well, really since the 2008 great financial crisis, but really even going before then, has been... Uh, economic uh, policy driven by central bank monetary policy. Um, we've had uh, the central bank coming in really over 40 years. And whenever there's been any kind of a hiccup in the economy, they've Recording lowered in rates. Progress. They've, uh, they've lowered rates whenever there's been any kind of a hiccup in the economy. And that had been the standard operating procedure and rates were going progressively lower and lower over 30 some odd years. And then we got to the 2008 great financial crisis. And then the Fed had to break out a whole tool bag of, of new tools from quantitative easing to TARP to a bunch of other acronym, acronyms. But at that point in particular, a trend went into overdrive. And that trend being that all markets, all uh, uh, financial assets were being driven by monetary policy and loose monetary policy. They were all floating on a sea of liquidity. And what happens with when when in that kind of a situation, it's really kind of insidious. A lot of contracyclical asset classes start correlating and all correlations start to trend toward one. So we had a 30, 40 year bond bull market. We had an equity bull market. We had gold and silver at that point being driven higher by monetary policy. So when everything is driven higher by monetary policy, when you easy money, when you remove that easy money, then everything comes back together. Um, and that's kind of what we're seeing right now. Gold and silver are a little bit more mixed because we have this accompanying by high inflation. And these are typically hedges against, 
I, I would say not so much inflation, but hedges against uh, fear of rapid depreciation in a currency's purchasing power. So we can get into that in a little bit more detail. But right now, there are no uh, particular safe havens because everything has been driven up on an ocean of liquidity, and that liquidity is at least attempting to be withdrawn right now. When we look at, you know, we often talk about gold as a hedge against inflation. And while that's, is it really an effective hedge against inflation or is it a crisis metal? Uh, there's sure. been talk about, for example, even cryptocurrency becoming a hedge against inflation, which I think that's been shattered uh, pretty well over the last couple of months. Uh, what are your thoughts on, is, has gold lost its luster, if I can use that analogy, <laughs> as, a, as an inflation hedge? You have not been the first one to come up with that phrase, by the way, so don't pat yourself on the back. Um, no, it, gold is not a tick-for-tick tick inflation hedge. It doesn't follow the CPI tick-by-tick. Tick. I tell people all the time, if you want something that's going to follow inflation in lockstep, then you need to buy energy because it's the only financial asset, liquid financial asset, that's actually calculated in the CPI. Um, and it does track uh, inflation, but then you have to get into the whole cause and effect um, uh, discussion. What gold is, is a, uh, it's really two things. I, I actually tweeted this out today, so it's right on the top of my mind. It is insurance against an inevitability. That being the depreciation of a currency, of your home currency, whatever that may be. You know that's going to happen. The only question is to what degree or, or how quickly. Um, but you know it's going to happen. And owning gold over the long term, gold and silver, hedges or protects against that inevitability. It's insurance against something you know is going to happen. The other thing it is, is an investment when people are about to freak out about the future purchasing power of their currency. So when, when people get really concerned that their currency is going to lose its um, purchasing power much more rapidly, then they run to, this, to the safety of gold and gold tends to uh, make up for lost time. You know, I show a, a couple of charts in my presentations, uh, one being the uh, depreciation in the value of the Roman denarius uh, right around the collapse of Rome. And right after that chart, I showed the depreciation in the purchasing power of the US dollar since the, the mid 1960s. And it, it you know, it, it is really an analog. They follow in the, the, the very same pattern and really over the same timeframes. Um, now, if you look at gold over that same time frame since the mid-1960s, you see it going from the lower left to the upper right, but you see a lot of jigs and jags and peaks and valleys in that line. When you have the valleys or the flat areas in that, in that line in the gold price, that's when people are relatively unconcerned. They're somewhat um, okay with what's going on. They're not particularly worried. But when people do get worried, then you see gold making up for lost time, overshooting equilibrium even, and, and really taking off. And it's at those periods when you see a crisis in confidence coming up that you should look to gold and silver and the associated uh, investments like mining stocks as investments and ways to leverage that macro trend. When we talk about loose monetary policy, I mean, the Fed has the ability to print money. They can put things on their balance sheet like mortgage-backed securities. They're putting uh, treasury notes on on the uh, on their balance sheet. How is that inexpensive money 
working its way through the financial system and causing asset price inflation? Well, it it does to some extent easy money. And when you just flood the system with lots of money, it, it has that effect. But as we saw in 2008, they did largely the same thing. Um, they just did it much more quickly post-COVID. But 2008, they did a lot of the same things. And we did not have an inflationary reaction because a lot of that money was corralled within the financial system. It went into bank reserves and the banks didn't lend the money. So it didn't stimulate economic activity, didn't stimulate monetary velocity. What was different this time was really on the fiscal side was the uh, the rescue spending bills that came in trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars. Um, and, and when they first started that, they, they were doing hundreds of millions of dollars in stimulus spending in bills and uh, uh at a time and they didn't want to to break that barrier of trillions. They just didn't want to start throwing trillions out there. But once they did, then the dam broke loose and it was absolutely at that point play money. So uh, it was all of that fiscal spending that really supercharged inflation along with uh, a lot of the supply chain issues. Uh, those obviously had an effect, but when you have uh, supplies supply chain issues, when you have demand surging, and then you throw in fiscal stimulus on top of that, it is a uh, time-tested recipe for what we're getting right now. Absolutely. Now, you and I were together a few weeks ago in Belize with the, at the Investor Summit. We heard what Danielle DiMartino Booth had to say, former uh, insider in, inside the Federal Reserve. In your opinion, based on, and I know you study this all the time, is are central banks out of ammunition at this point in terms of tools to fight inflation? Really, how high can they let interest rates go without bankrupting the nation? Yeah, I think they're essentially impotent right now as far as fighting inflation. And the reason being debt. You know, we had 40 years of ever lower interest rates, and, and that encouraged a lot of speculation. It built financial bubbles, et cetera. But key to all of it, it, it also built debt. It, it encouraged the accumulation of debt, not just by individuals and corporations, but really primarily by uh, by nations, sovereign debt, and particularly the U.S. And, and right now we have a situation where the, uh, the federal debt, you know, we look at 2008, they tried to normalize rates post that. They, they had their first rate hike in December of 2015, and they started raising rates. I'm talking about the Fed here. They started raising rates at the... Uh, um, you know, the blinding rate of a quarter point a year. And which we saw in, in as I've shown in my presentations, we saw the uh, uh, interest costs on the federal debt uh, about go up about 35, 40% in a flash at that kind of a rate of increase, a quarter point a year. Now we have the Fed doing what was then two years of rate hikes uh, in one meeting. So they are raising rates much more quickly. Um, so that bottom line cost for the federal debt is going to rise much more quickly. And, and the real issue now is that the federal debt is three times larger than it was in 2008. So you have a situation where very small increases in interest rates have an outsized effect because the federal debt is much larger. But they're also not making very small increases. They're also making very large increases in interest rates. Um, and so essentially they are going to get to the point very quickly where we are, will be paying in the U.S. 
about a, tr a trillion dollars a year or more just to cost, just to service the, uh, the federal debt every year. And I think that's kind of a, um, a political br brick wall. I, I think there'll be uh, protests in the streets. And in fact, there was a Bloomberg uh, piece out today that essentially said that and compared that to the 1970s, um, the kinds of uh, protests that were occurring because of the, the cost of the federal debt rising so quickly, what's well, going to happen much more quickly and to a much greater degree this time. Um, so yeah, because of that, because of the size of the federal debt, uh, the Fed really is powerful, central banks in general. Um, you know, Volcker in the 70s was able to kill off inflation because he raised the uh, interest rates above the rate of inflation. But Volcker had the luxury of a federal debt that was about 30% of US GDP. Today, it's about 130% of US GDP, over four times as large as the percentage of GDP. You just can't do today what Volcker did. So the Fed is, is limited to uh, probably another point or two at most in uh, interest rate increases. Another big difference is at that time in the, 19, uh, in the early 1980s, we had the workforce growing at about one and a half percent a year as yeah. you know, people came into the workforce. Today, we have the opposite happening where we have a demographically shrinking workforce, which if you look, for example, to Japan and their lost decade, that coincided with their peak of population, and as people started, the aging population, people started exiting the workforce, was that lost decade that they, that, uh, you know, has really become famous or infamous. Yeah, demographics is destiny, and, and people don't realize today that within 20 or 30 years, the world population is going to be shrinking. The only area where it will be increasing will be Africa, um, and that has huge repercussions. I mean, if you look at the social security systems in the U.S. and around the world, you have uh, ever fewer workers contributing to the safety net for an ever-growing number of, of seniors and retirees. Exactly. Now, yesterday you did a, a fantastic segment with Rick Rule and Adam Taggart where you were talking about the commodity super cycle and talking about what's happening generally in terms of commodities. I know you touched on a number of different things. Uh, what would be some of the highlights that you might want to, you want to start with copper perhaps? Yeah, I, there, I look at it as there are, we are coming into a super cycle across a broad spectrum of, of commodities. You can look at uranium, you can look at lithium, you can look at anything associated with battery metals. You can look at base metals like zinc and nickel. And you can look at the monetary metals, gold and silver, for different reasons. But what we've had is a, a kind of an atypical cycle in commodities where, you know, commodities move in, in these cycles where you have underinvestment that drive prices up, then you have overinvestment in capacity and development, bring supply on, create prices crater, then all that supply comes off and you do the whole cycle again. We had that cycle post uh, well, really post 2008, uh, we had a big uh, commodity super cycle from 2000 to about 2007, 2008. And uh, a lot of the big major producers uh, were, were spending money back then, buying up res uh, resources, reserves, other mining companies, like drunken sailors, and they got burnt. And during the collapse, a lot of them uh, lost their jobs or, you know, their share prices cratered. Et cetera, et cetera. So they've been burnt. 
in that respect. Uh, added on top of that, we had the rise of the ESG phenomenon, which uh, prohibited and really uh, slowed down permitting and development uh, across the board. So we're facing a situation right now where we've had many years of underinvestment in capacity. So supplies have not grown. Uh, and that would be normal for a commodity cycle, but it's been exacerbated this time around. It's really much more um, restricted now than it typically is. But we're also facing a demand growth curve like nothing the world really has ever seen, especially in copper. Um, it takes around 10 years to bring a copper mine from discovery to actual production. Sometimes it takes far longer if they miss that commodity cycle. Sometimes it takes decades. Um, so supply cannot respond very quickly in copper and really across the board, but particularly in copper, to, uh, to price increases and growth in demand. And we're going to have incredible growth in demand if that electrification of transportation uh, uh, mega trend is anything near what people are predicting. Uh, if Even if you wipe that out and don't even consider batteries and charging stations and the grid, if you don't even consider that additional demand, just the primary demand for copper is going to significantly outstrip supplies uh, by the next year or two, and the gap is just only going to grow larger and larger. And potentially even rebuilding the Ukraine, for example. Yes, absolutely. So... We've seen copper prices pull back over the last little while. That seems yep. to be perhaps in anticipation of a, of a recession and perhaps a short-term surplus in supply. Would you say this is an opportunity for those that might be interested in using commodities as a hedge against inflation to come into the market at, at, at a good price? Yeah, yeah, and I, I wouldn't call this the bottom. I would say it's an attractive buying area. I don't know whether copper and other base metals and commodities will go lower, but it's, uh, as Rick said in our webinar yesterday, at some point it's, it's out of value and it's in a buying range and you should take advantage of it. I think the pullback in copper over the last month or so is, is really a gift horse. If you have a longer term horizon of say three to five years, um, I think copper the copper price will come close to doubling over that time span. Very interesting. Now, you're very active in, in gold, and there's many ways to engage that market. You can in, buy the physical metal, you can buy certificates, yeah. you can play the futures, you can uh, invest in exploration companies. I know you've done all of the above in spades. Um, you talk about maybe some of the differences of engaging at each of these different levels. Yeah, it's, it, there is a, ver, a, a wide spectrum of ways to, to, uh, to invest in this sector. I tell people who are new to the sector, they need to have physical metals, uh, gold and silver primarily as monetary metals uh, in their possession or ready access. Uh, they need to have that as insurance for their wealth or everything they've built up in their investing and, and working careers. Uh, to, again, insure against something we know is going to happen, the depreciation of the purchasing power of their currency. Once you get beyond that, then you can get to, uh, because you, it, a lot of times if you, you want more metal, you want more exposure than you can really physically store or easily store. So sometimes people look for the paper representations, the trusts or ETFs. Uh, in that regard, 
it's, I look at that as something that's not so much your insurance, but that's a way to play these macro trends and use it as an investment. I particularly recommend the Sprott Physical Trust in, in uh, that sector for gold, silver, and, and other metals, and even uranium. They do a great job of actually buying the metals and putting them away. Uh, then if you agree with the macro trends that I think are obvious, but if you agree with these, these macro trends that we're going to see a acceleration in the depreciation of currencies, um, then you, you can leverage the moves in the metals through the mining stocks. Within that, there's a spectrum. You can have the major producers, you can have the intermediate mid-tier producers, small producers, and you can get into the exploration and development uh, juniors that I kind of specialize in in, in gold newsletter. Um, and at each stage on that spectrum, every each area on that spectrum entails greater risk and or lower rewards, potential rewards. So you have to play that. The juniors are highly speculative. Uh, you really need to know what you're doing or get some trusted advice if you're investing in those. Uh, the majors, if you get toward the upper end of the, the larger cap companies, um, you can try and pick and choose. But at that point, you're, you may want to just buy the indices like GDX or GDXJ to get exposure to those companies. And when you say the majors, you're talking about you know big companies like Barrick, for example. Yeah, Barrick, Newmont, um, uh, Anglo Gold, uh, the likes of those. Yeah. Now, uh, for the folks here in the audience, one of the reasons we're talking about this is that in an inflationary environment, three things happen: people on fixed income have their purchasing power wiped out, savings get wiped out if you're denominated in dollars or whatever currency is being depreciated. And then third, debt gets wiped out. So the, the flight to safety is by getting into real assets that retain their value. So some of these commodities can be part of that play. Real estate can be part of that play, but it starts with real assets. So th that's why we're focusing tonight on commodities, because it's a, it's a very liquid way of also investing in real assets that's much, much quicker than, let's say, buying a, an 80-unit apartment building and doing a value-add play. You can do that too, and you should do that, but it's not as quick. Brian, when you and I, uh, we've had a number of conversations over the years about this, and I know that on the, let's say, that more speculative end of the, of the market, what you described to me sounded very similar to venture capital investing in tech mm -hmm. companies, where you might have perhaps even the majority, three quarters of those companies or those investments underperform, some maybe even go to zero, but it's that small percentage, 10, 20%, that make up for all the others. Yeah. Is, that still, is that still the case? Yeah, that's, that is the case. Um, and what's interesting or, or what you need to know about that junior market is that the, uh, the epicenters of financing and, and investment in those sectors are typically Vancouver and Toronto, uh, Vancouver even more so for the juniors. And, uh, and that's where the action is. And it is a very well regulated market. It used to not be, and it had a lousy reputation, but ironically, because that the, uh, uh, what used to be the Vancouver exchange now is the Toronto venture exchange, because they saw every manner of scam that could be imagined by man, they were able to regulate against those. Uh, and it is, uh, you know, I, 
a risky environment, but not nearly as risky as far as outright scams or fraud as it is it used to be. In fact, I would recommend that anyone investing in the sector not recommend or not invest in any junior mining company that is only listed on, say, the OTC in the U.S. and not on the um, uh, Canadian Stock Exchange or the Toronto Venture Stock Exchange. Let's switch gears for a moment, talk a little bit about the New Orleans Investment Conference. It has a storied history. You were not the founder. Yeah, you took it over. Why don't you maybe start with a little bit of the history of the conference and where you've taken it to today? Yeah, it. Uh, I started off, well, the New Orleans Conference start, was started by a, a guy named Jim Blanchard in 1974. And before that, when Nixon closed the gold window, uh, severed the, the connection between the dollar and gold. Uh, back then, it was illegal for U.S. citizens to own gold, but uh, other governments could turn in their dollars to the U.S. Treasury and collect U.S. Treasury gold in return. And they did that because they saw that the dollar was overvalued after you know, the decade of the 60s, guns and butter, et cetera. So Nixon was kind of forced to close that attachment to gold. And Jim Blanchard, when he heard that, decided to uh, advocate for the return of the right of gold ownership for American citizens. Um, and he did that by, by starting this publication, Gold Newsletter. He was successful after doing a lot of crazy stunts, one of which was smuggling a two-ounce bar of gold in from Canada and going around the U.S. holding press conferences and begging the Treasury and ATF to arrest him, which they declined to do, unfortunately. Um, but he was successful in getting gold legalized in 1974, decided to have an investment conference, and, uh, and it, it just blossomed, blossomed and grew and grew. And this will be our 48th annual event uh, this year. Jim passed away in 1999. I had started working for him in 1985 as a junior copywriter and uh, owned about 20% of the company by the time he passed away and was running it for him for about a decade at that point. So I bought the remaining interest from his estate and uh, have been running it ever since and trying to live up to his legacy. Over the years, we've had uh, some extraordinary, really giants of modern history present at the conference. We had Ayn Rand give her last public presentation at the event. We had Milton Friedman, F.A. Hayek, uh, Margaret Thatcher, uh, politicians of all stripes, um, a lot of really big names. Alan Greenspan has been a repeated uh, presenter uh, over the years. So it's really been uh, quite a ride. And in recent years, I've tried to bring on a lot of uh, new thinkers that are kind of responding to these uh, interesting times that we live in. You know, I think extraordinary times bring out extraordinary people. And we've seen a... Um, an influx or a growth of, of people coming in, especially in social media and financial Twitter, with great commentary and some brilliant analyses. And we're featuring a lot of them right now at, at the conference. Uh, and I think it's kind of a new renaissance for alternative financial information. On a personal level, when you are inviting some of these extraordinary guests to speak at the conference, and you get time with them one-on-one -on -one in the green room before or after their presentation, What's that like? What's that like from your point of view to get perspectives from some of those folks one on one? Uh, it's great. Sometimes they will say things they won't say out on stage. But frankly, our event is kind of intimate 
intimate and encourages people to say things they would not say elsewhere. So, uh, and we bring that out. We're pretty blunt on, on the stage, but it is, it, it is backstage is fascinating. Some of the people that we get to talk to, I've been working or trying to figure out a way to have a camera in there. Uh, and I can't figure out whether I need to tell people there's a camera or not. And when there is, you know, that's going to affect how they act. But I think they would get past that pretty quickly. Um, but that that is an added benefit of organizing the event. But I try to take what happens back there and bring it out onto the main stage. And I think largely we're successful in doing that. Yeah, certainly the speakers that I've seen on stage have been phenomenal. Who, do, who are some of the folks you have lined up for this year? Uh, we have James Grant, uh, uh, George Gammon, uh, Brent Johnson. Maybe give a little bit of, of who some of these folks are for the folks who don't know. James Grant is Grant's uh, interest, interest rate advisor, correct? Yeah, yeah. James Grant is the most eloquent and intelligent commentator on the markets today. Um, and I, we've had him for decades off and on, and now I'm pretty much determined to have him every year that I can get him. Uh, brilliant, brilliant uh, speaker, you, somebody you hang on every word uh, because he's also quite humorous. Um, and, and really, probably, well, one of the most respected uh, commentators out there today. George Gammon, as you know, is one of the best educators, financial educators out there today. His whiteboard presentations on YouTube are legendary. He has a way of taking a lot of really complicated subjects and breaking it down. And he's a true advocate of personal liberty and free markets. So that's also kind of a theme that we've had at our event over the years. Um, Brent Johnson is uh, another one of these financial Twitter commentators who's been espousing something called the milkshake theory for a few years uh, and taken a lot of really been the victim of a lot of slings and arrows and criticism because the, his milkshake theory uh, says that the dollar will surge in value uh, before it collapses and before gold takes off. And it's kind of playing out really as we speak. So he's regained a lot of credibility. I've been featuring him, featuring him for a few years because I thought he had a well thought out um, thesis and it, it's turning out to be that way. We're having Jim Rickards uh, present, you know, he's one of the smartest guys around uh, really detailed analysis of macro investment trends been right on top of a lot of things that we're, we're seeing playing out today far in advance. Danielle DiMartino Booth, who you mentioned, a Fed insider, really cutting insights on what's uh, on what's happening at the Fed. Uh, we have Dave Collum, who is an endowed uh, chair of chemistry at Cornell. Um, and it's amazing. He's still there. Thank, thank goodness for tenure, because he's one of the most outspoken people you'll ever see about everything from um, uh, pandemics to macroeconomics. And he holds nothing back. And he's very entertaining. Um, we have um, Jim Iurio, who used to be on CNBC, uh, who was a floor trader in Chicago, who's also a very outspoken, uh, great analyst. Uh, we have Rick Rule, um, and uh, who you know presented last year, uh, last night in the uh, the webinar was when we have Adam Taggart doing a panel on the future of money. Robert and uh, Helms and in Russ Gray 
of course, have become a key part of our event. Um, and I wish I had the list in front of me, uh, Victor, because it goes on and on. Yeah, no, Literally dozens upon dozens of top-level speakers. So this year, obviously, is going to be a, a little bit of a different year and that there's just so much happening in, in, in the economy. Um, what are your thoughts, um, maybe as, as, as we wrap up, what are your thoughts on how on, on what investors can do in today's environment uh, just to protect themselves? Yeah, I, um, I think gold and silver are at great levels right now. Um, if you can get the physical metals, that's, that's a bit of the issue right now. Um, it's hard to find physical metals. You have to pay a lot above the, the melt value, the spot value of the metals to even get the, the bars and coins. And there's key ways to do that. Um, so I, I think that that's important to do. I think obviously uh, your area of expertise, real estate is a great haven, uh, it, perhaps the only safe haven. It just says, as you mentioned, a bit of a lead time involved and it's not quite as liquid. Um, I am not a, believe it or not, despite what I've just said, a huge doom and gloomer. Um, I do think that we're on a, uh, a trend, a long-term trend where Fiat currencies in general lose credibility and utility, and they'll have to re-anchor to real assets at some point, probably gold and or silver, to reestablish that credibility. But I don't know whether that's going to happen during this boom-bust cycle or the next one or the one after that. I do know we're approaching that the end game of that trend. Um, what will happen in the next hiccup, which is kind of happening as we speak right now, is that the central banks will come back in and rescue the markets again. So uh, I don't think that we need to have a crash in the stock market, an absolute crash, even though we've had a, a, a we're already in bear market territory. I don't think we have to have an absolute crash in the stock market for gold and silver to rise. I think they can all rise together. Uh, and those correlations will continue to go toward one as central banks drive uh, monetary policy. So at some point, the broader stock market is is a buy, I think, because I think the Fed is going to come in and rescue it. The other central banks are going to come in and rescue the markets um, at some point. And we'll, we'll begin another one of those cycles. So um, long-term gold and silver, physical gold and silver, hedging that macro trend that I think is very positive for those metals. Um, the the energy-based metals, some of the big producers of copper uh, and nickel um, and lithium and uh, uranium are, are good places to look. And there are a number of producers out there that are at good levels as well. The, the big miners are making money hand over fist right now, even with the correction we've gotten in the base metals. One of the things that I know we talked about with Chris Martinson, Adam has talked about it quite a bit as well, is this whole question of the U.S. potentially losing its reserve currency status. Just last week, India started purchasing uh, coal from Russia, denominated mm -hmm. in Chinese currency, where previously they would have purchased in U.S. dollars. What are your thoughts on the implications of potentially the U.S. losing its reserve currency status? Because right now the U.S. is willing to impose economic sanctions against folks that they don't agree with, and therefore yeah. weaponizing the dollar, which in some sense hurts their ability to maintain that reserve currency status. 
Yeah, they are hurting their credibility uh, and weakening the rule of law uh, through the, the weaponizing of the dollar. And, um, and that is having an effect. The, you know, uh, the simple answer a lot of people give is that the U.S. has eight aircraft carriers, and that's what supports the, the reserve uh, status of the U.S. dollar. I don't really, I mean, I'm sure that plays some part in it, but I think the real issue for the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency is, is rule of law. Uh, and while the U.S. has done a lot to, um, to weaken that, and while there's plenty to criticize about the rule of law in the U.S., it's still farsight better than China and Russia, um, where your, um, the, the value or the future of your investments is really depends on the mood of, uh, of a dictator, quite frankly. Um, so I think the U.S., I'm not one of those people that thinks the U.S. is going to lose its reserve currency status anytime soon. Uh, I don't like the trends. I don't like what they've done to, uh, to weaken that status. But I th think they have enough of a lead on just about everywhere else in the world that it, at least for the foreseeable future, of course, the future isn't foreseeable, but at least for the near, the, the long term, intermediate to longer term, I think it's going to retain that uh, reserve currency status. Awesome. Uh, Brian, do you have a few minutes for a couple of questions from the audience? Oh, absolutely. That's okay. the fun part. Um, if you have a question, why don't you maybe form a lineup here, come up on stage. That way, Brian can see you here on the camera. And if you have a question for Brian, yeah, come on up. Hey, how's, how's everybody doing? Good, good. It's funny. This is the hall I got married in. <laughs> hey, uh, I really appreciate the, uh, you know, uh, basically, you know, providing your insights and whatnot. I'll ask a very basic question, you know, because I think I need to learn a lot more about interest rates and whatnot. So why did the Fed, uh, you know, increase the rate by 1%? Like, uh, why not three quarters of a percent? Why not, why, half a per why not half a percent? Why by a full 100 basis points? Thank you. Uh, I, I, I guess he's asking why don't they do that or why do they? Well, so, so the question is why would they choose a particular, uh, you know, amount to raise the interest rate? So today, yeah. Bank of Canada raised its rate by a full percentage point where they previously, yeah. yeah, it was a bit of a shock because they had essentially leaked to the market or whispered to the market that they were going to do 75 basis points. Yeah. Well, I, I think one way to look at it is when the, the Fed or central bank raises by a quarter point, and they do in quarter point in, increments because to do otherwise would be really silly. But, uh, but so they do a quarter point because they want to show the market that they're serious. They do a half point because they want to show investors that they're really serious. Three quarters that they're really, really serious. <laughs> and uh, 1% that we, we damn well mean it this time. Um, and that's really what it is. It's showing the degree of, of um, you know, they're trying to deliver a message. The actual effect of that is uh, is really debatable. Uh, how much it, it, it uh, now what the central bank is trying to do, they can't affect the supply situation in the economy. They can only affect demand. So they want to try and stunt demand, stop people from buying and having economic activity to slow down the economy because they feel that that fuels inflation. In actuality, price inflation is a symptom of what they did before, which was monetary inflation. So they don't even understand uh, how inflation is created, but they do know their tools. 
And when they go from a quarter point, they've got that little finishing hammer. And when they get to a one full percentage point, they've got that big, heavy maul. And that's, that's really what they're looking at. That's the only tool they know how to use. And Powell even said in um, the last meeting or press conference that they've come to realize that they really don't understand what they don't understand about inflation, uh, which we, we, we understood all along that they didn't understand. That's, that's a very interesting point. So, for example, uh, we often think that the central bank sets the interest rate. But when yep. the banks loan money, they then take that those loans, securitize them, and sell them in the bond market. If they have to sell those bonds in the bond market at a discount, well, then who's really setting the interest rate? Is it the central bank or is it the bond market? What do you what say you? What do you think? Yeah, and you know we saw in the 1970s there was something called the bond vigilantes that forced um, the central banks to have some kind of uh, credibility or restraint. Uh, and they disappeared literally for decades. And we saw one brief instance a few years ago where they kind of reappeared. But right now, with the Federal Reserve buying one quarter, although they're rolling it off, but up, up until about a month ago, they were buying one quarter of all the issuance of federal securities, um, treasury securities. And they were buying one quarter of uh, the treasury are the inflation-protected treasuries, the TIPS, which then affects inflation expectations. So they had their finger on the scale all over the place. With them being such a big buyer of treasury securities, the um, uh, the bond vigilantes have been um, neutralized to some extent. But that is a whole nother interesting aspect of what happens with a lot of the arguments that I, all of the arguments that I put forward today and all the prognostications and views assumes that the Fed remains in control. Now, once you flip over to a, a situation where the Fed loses control over interest rates and there's nobody out there buying treasury securities because inflation is so high, and the treasury, the interest rates are so low, they're going to demand ever higher and higher interest rates. The only thing the Fed can do at that point is dramatically purchase uh, a la Japan. And, and we know how that works out. So there's a whole nother track that things could go on if the Fed loses control. But it would uh, essentially accelerate all the trends we're talking about as far as the depreciation of, of currencies. More questions. Come on up. Curious to hear your thoughts on uh, the fact that Canada doesn't hold any gold in its reserves. And I know there's a lot of countries that or rumors are they're buying tons and tons, but Canada doesn't have any. Do you think that's going to come back to bite us in the butt in the future? Uh, short answer, yes. I don't like to criticize uh, other people's countries, <laughs> especially in a room of citizens of that country. But yeah, I don't think that was a smart uh, move by Canada. There's uh, a counter argument that they have all this gold in the ground, but that doesn't count. You still got to dig it out. Uh, and it's in private hands. Um, you know, Russia, interestingly, built up its gold reserves by forcing all of the gold producing companies to sell to uh, the Treasury to the central bank. So they printed up rubles with a few keystrokes and bought gold with it. Um, that's a great deal. Uh, Canada could do about the same thing very easily. Uh, I don't know why they don't. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's a big mistake. I really do. <laughs> <Awesome. laughs> 
I thought it was a rhetorical question. <laughs> Hello, thanks for speaking. Uh, you'd mentioned that the Fed's kind of painted into a corner compared to the 70s because the debt's so high compared to GDP. And I'm wondering if, although they want to rein in inflation or are talking about it, are they incentivized to let it run hot so they can kind of inflate away the debt? Or do they really want to rein it in? Yeah, I, I yes, uh, they are long-term incentivized to inflate away the debt. And I don't know if they're so much incentivized, but that has to happen. Um, and, and they kind of know it. But if you look at how it has to work, you would have to have inflation at 8% a year for 10 years to erase half the value of the debt. Um, and, and that would be something that, you know, none of those people working at the Fed would have their jobs. So they have to look at it from that standpoint. They're really not incentivized to let inflation run quite that hot uh, over that time period. Um, so, you know, the other thing is to kill off inflation like Volcker did, you have to raise interest rates above the rate of inflation. Um, interest rates affect the, I mean, the, the Fed and the Treasury pays that those interest rates on the federal debt. So what they have to do or have to have a situation where we have negative real rates, where the rate of inflation is higher than the rate they're paying on the debt so that those dollars are depreciating more quickly than they're paying interest on that debt. So the, the easy way to, to sum that up is you can't have positive real rates with the debt this large forevermore. Uh, you cannot have interest rates above the rate of inflation. And you have to have that to be able to kill off inflation. Volcker was able to do that because he had the, uh, uh, well, there's no Volcker walking our, the streets today. Nobody who, who would do what Volcker did to kill off inflation, but also that tool is no longer available. Because the debt's so large, they cannot raise interest rates above the rate of inflation. Well, Brian, this has been awesome. Thank you for your time. I know you're uh, away with your family on the beach, so uh, thanks for taking the time. Uh, Brian London, everyone. Thank you, Victor. Thank you, my friend. We'll see you in New Orleans in October.